0: Hello, Monetization Nation. Stephen Tuig has spent two decades being mentored by and studying with some of the greatest minds in influence and human transformation. He spent a decade working under Tony Robbins as the linchpin for his business mastery division. He spent two decades facilitating shadow work, hero's journey, NLP, influence, and any methods of change he could get his hands on. He recently started a company called Mastering Change that is tasked with creating experiential exercises that transform and educate. His travels have led him around the world, teaching business owners and individuals how to lead a more fulfilling and impactful life. He is a coach, a guide, a facilitator, and an agent of change, helping businesses to transform. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Nathan. I appreciate it
0: it's an honor to have you on the show.
1: It's, it's an honor to be here. I'm excited to speak to you and kind of learn what you guys are doing and work with your team, your, 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 uh, your viewers, your listeners. I'm I'm, uh, hoping to add some value here.
0: Sounds great. Can you start off by sharing with us something that you're
1: super passionate about? Super passionate about, I am passionate about change. I am passionate. I, I, uh, She's April 2000. I started started uh, to I learned about mission and purpose and understanding human dynamics and I started to understand why am I here, and I developed a mission. My mission is to create a world where everybody reaches their true potential by making the impossible possible. My purpose is to channel light, love, and grace. And I had, I had this ritual every morning. I get up, I get on my knees, I say a specific prayer, and I take this necklace. I put it around my neck. It's my anchor. Uh, they call it uh, enclosed cognition. I state my mission and I go, okay. And I go throughout my day. And then at the end of the day, I take this necklace off and I go, what did I do today to move that dial? What did I do today to live that mission? And so for the past two decades, I have been focused on what makes people change and not just change, but how do you make that change stick? How do you make it that rapid transformation and then integrate that lesson into businesses, into lives. And so that's been my passion my, uh, my almost like a, a crazy obsession, where I spend probably ninety-five percent of my time going. Well, what would happen if this and that, and putting all this stuff together? So, my passion really is change work and helping people transform.
0: Can you tell me a story of a, of some organization that you have helped to change, and they've seen some huge impact from that?
1: Yeah, I can give you a, a real matter of fact. When I was working with a company, they were a trucking company a shipping company doing about a hundred and probably I think about 150 million in, in, in annual revenue. And when he came to me, his problem was uh, the, the truckers were, um, they were having safety issues. Safety issues are a big deal in this specific industry. And he was very concerned. And as we started to, you know, find out who he was as an organization and drill down uh, we found out the culture was what he was missing. He had leaned into a, uh, Newest knew his truckers were his primary, um, primary impact point, but yet these truckers, although they came to the company because they trusted this company and they wanted to be part of, um, they had lost touch with some of that. And so his, he originally came to me because he needed to solve this this uh, safety issue, but what he really had was a culture issue. And so then we started working with him in regards to how to create influence, how to become an influential leader. There's an persuasion and influence, persuasion is dead. So how do you influence somebody to do or not do anything? And, and how do you develop the, uh, a type of company where the culture itself will elevate and, and transform the impact that that organization makes? I love it. You, yeah. you
0: recently wrote an article or a while back, you wrote an article about the six influence points. Can you talk us through those six points?
1: Oh, they're right here. They're actually seven influence points I've added the central one, which really made it all come in. So um, this is through working with Tony, working with NLP, working with shadow facilitation, uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, and um, just a myriad of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, motivational interviewing, um, uh, 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 all the any, demo, any, any, any process you can think, like strategies, all the various strategies I studied. So Tony used to say that identity is the most powerful force in the human condition. Uh, well that's interesting well people will do just about that anything to stay consistent with the labels that they use to define themselves you think spiral dynamics you think disk assessments you think um the seven basic you tony says it's six i think there's seven basic human needs that loads at the identity level and this is how you influence someone. understanding what identity they're coming from allows you as a, as a company to then uh identify this my client is this primary identity uh, my ideal client is this primary identity. Okay, if they have that specific identity, what is the narrative that they operate in? In other words, what is the frame of reference that they're looking at the now, the problem? Um, I've I've taken uh, stages of change, which is a therapeutic tool to help people change, and I've taken the sales model and I've 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 slapped them together and created what I call conscious qualifying. So where are they at in the problem? Are they in pre-contemplation, contemplation, are they in preparation? Are they in action? Are they in maintenance states? How are they looking at the problem? Because in the narrative level, if you think about it, a person will not fully buy into a solution until they fully understand the problem. People come all the time. I see sales professionals that engage their clients and they run them through this pitch, right? And the client is just trying to figure out what their problem is. And this guy over here is trying to sell them something. They haven't fully wrapped their mind around the problem yet. So when you understand how they're looking at it from a plot perspective or a narrative perspective, that allows you to develop what I call resonance or rapport at a deeper level, create what I call fourth level listening, understanding where they're at in the journey. Now that we know how they're thinking about the problem, what stage of development they're in, the next question is, is where are they at in the process? What is the story from a hero's journey perspective, from an understanding how they're framing where they're at, what they have to solve? Once you've understand that, then you have to ask yourself, what are the beliefs? And there's three beliefs that a, a customer must have before they purchase. They have to know that, A, um, I, I can do this. I can solve this problem. A lot of times when uh, when you're trying to sell something to somebody, especially when I was working with Tony or when I working with a client, I go, here's the solution. They go, yeah, that works for you, but I could never do that. I'm not good enough, right? We all have two fears. I'm not good enough and you're not going to love me. So first, I gotta, they gotta believe that they can do this. Once they know they can solve the problem, then the second belief they have to have is that this, this solution, the solution that you're giving me is the right solution for this problem, right? If they don't believe in your product, there's no way they're ever gonna buy from you, right? Um, the third thing that they have to believe is now is the time to solve the problem. They don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in your product. They don't believe now is the time. Customer will just float out. there asking questions trying to solve a problem in your mind if it be a business problem a personal problem a relationship problem you'll never actually act on it so that's where the belief comes into play and then you have your emotion or what I call energy because right? that's all emotion is is energy what is it what is the emotional resonance where is the client meeting you at what is the charge they have and and how are they looking at you if you're a salesperson and you're in a if you're own a car lot for example one of the one of the unwritten stories the, the car lot auto salesman auto is the second least trusted profession on the planet, right? So when that customer steps on your, your car lot, you know that that backstory, this guy's trying to rip me off, is probably at play in the way that they're looking at the situation. You have to meet that customer where they're at and understand the energy, the charge that they're carrying through that. And then decisions are strategies. That's all they are. What are the strategies? What are the decisions you you need to make? What are the different variables you need to take in place? And actions are the habits and the rituals that you do on a regular basis to create the outcome. So identity drives narrative. Narrative gels into the story. Stories turn into your beliefs. Beliefs then load the charge or the emotion, which then leads to the decisions, which causes the actions and the result that you're looking for. Those are the seven influence points.
0: That is so powerful. I, I'd like to go deeper into a couple of those. Maybe get your sure. thoughts on them. So let's talk about story really quick and, and the hero's journey. Maybe you could explain to our audience what you mean with that. And I love the hero's yeah. journey. Most of the best movies that are out there follow the hero's journey.
1: Every story out there that's any worth its weight in gold. You think you take Jekyll and Hyde, you take, Um, You take Tom Sawyer, you take uh, The Avengers, you take, uh, we were just watching some crazy comedy last night, Dave and somebody go to a wedding or something like that. Every movie, every story, every book, every television show that you've ever watched that's had any kind of resonance with you has followed a specific groove. Now, this is what I find mind boggling when you really think of it. Every story, not just the stories you've been told, but the stories that your parents were told. The stories that your parents' parents were told, parents, 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 all the way back to when story was first. And stories are the evolutionary tool. If you think about it, people say that the disposable thumbs or opposable thumbs are, are the tool that has helped us evolve. But story tells us what to engage, what to hold on to. And we all have this pattern in our head. We don't think in time, we think in moments. But we store that, that experience in story form. And the format that we've all been told that's burned into our DNA is the hero's journey. And when you can understand that, then you can meet somebody where you're at saying, oh, you're at this stage of change. Oh, you sound like you're going through the dark night of the soul. And you see these like if you go back just uh, Spider-Man, great example, Spider-Man, there's a scene in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming the new spider when spider-man first entered the mcu universe and he's under he's got this big rubble he's got this big building that's been crashed on top of him and he's just feeling so small so crushed so everything and he looks down and he sees this puddle and in this puddle he can see his reflection and half has got his spider-man mask on and half of him is peter parker and he hears his voice in his head that says if you if you don't if if you need the suit to be spider-man then you don't deserve to have the suit and you see this transition point where he realizes that I am Spider-Man, that I am the one I'm waiting for and shifts. And that's what I call a Shazam moment. It's a moment where for a brief period of time, I lock into who what's really going on and gain this heightened character. So if you go back, Nathan, and look at any problem that you've ever solved, any challenge that you've overcome, isn't it true that once you came through that that experience, you became not not a different version of Nathan, the same version of Nathan, but a bigger in regards to the awareness and what you thought you could do. Yeah. It's okay. so true. And that's because you've had this experience of uncovering, we think that we need more resources. I need, I need more clients. I think I need more of this. I think I need more of that. No, you have to step back and, and access a deeper part of yourself. And in the movie, in the hero's journey, isn't it true that every movie you've ever watched customer needs to, or the the hero needs to go get the fiery sword, they get the fiery sword, but they don't transform who they are to become a bigger, better bolder. Some part of us knows that the story's not over because you haven't transformed as a character. And again, this is the way we've been taught to think in our mind to make meaning of the world. And if you're going to help people make meaning, you should know how that meaning is made. It's made through story, through the hero's journey.
0: So, in belief, you said there's there's two core fears that we deal with that that I'm not good enough and that you're not going to love me.'re not right? love me. so so talk about those. Um, why do we have those? How are those manifest? How do we overcome those, right? Give us some advice yeah.
1: yeah. so so and again, we take the hero's journey. There's another gentleman that i that i that I've integrated called Stanislav Grof, who teaches the four matrices of birth. So think about it, when you're born, um, the one thing that we don't take into consideration in birthing process is the actual baking of the baby. So you have four stages of the birth. So the first stage is I'm kind of floating around in the embryo, ambiotic fluid. There's no tomorrow, there's no today, there's no hunger, there's no, everything's fed umbilically, right? There's no hot, there's no cold, it just is. And because we have no sense of time, because time is a man-made construct, it seems like it's an eternity. We're just kind of floating around, no problem. Everything's, every now and again, somebody taps on the belly, you might kick back, right? And then you're just kind of floating in there enjoying, this is perfect, this is awesome, this feels really good. And then all of a sudden you hit stage two. Stage two is where, stage two of birthing process is when the, the blood source, the food source starts to dwindle. You, and all of a sudden you start to get contractions from every side, you're just, you didn't do anything wrong, but all of a sudden, pain, all of a sudden, suffering, all of a sudden, there's this pressure. You're not moving anywhere. It's just compression. Again, as, a, as an as a, as a embryo, as a baby, you don't know what the heck is going on. You don't know what to make of any of this. You hit the third stage. Third stage is when you start to travel through the birth canal. There was this. Now there's that. I'm here. Now I'm there. There starts to be some, you can see movement. You can experience movement as a, as a baby. You're experiencing it. The fourth stage, you come out of this, come out of this, this experience, all of a sudden these big long dangly things come and pick you up and move you over here. You have no control. You don't have to control your arms. Everything's out of focus. You're cold, you're hungry, you don't understand what these beings are, and you're nurtured and cared by these beings. You start to notice that when I do this, woo, they smile at me, they're happy. When I When I cry, they jump. Oh, that's interesting. And then all of a sudden they stick a bottle in my mouth. I'm not hungry anymore. I don't have that feeling in my belly anymore. So you become very dependent upon this other thing, right? Well, what happens eventually when you're first a baby, you poop and everything, Oh, look at the baby, the baby pooped. Oh, look at the poop. And then one day what happened? I got seven kids, five in the home. I could tell you eventually it's like, Oh man, what was that? All of a sudden, there's this different interaction. You start to notice that this thing that is responsible for me, sometimes not happy with me. Why? Is there something wrong with me? What if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not good enough for this person? The first fear, this is when the first fear comes online is, hmm, I'm not good enough. And then the second fear is, if I'm not good enough, you're not going to love me. And if you don't love me, how am I going to eat? So this is you know, think about it. We don't have wings. We don't have claws. We don't have speed. Our, our number one survival tool is love. It's the number one tool we have. And if I don't get love from my family, then we all know what happens if a baby doesn't get love, it dies. They call it, they got some name for it. I can't remember what it is, but failure to thrive. thrive. There you go. Yeah. So they go to this failure to thrive thing. And next thing you know, you got a whole different experience, right? So this is why this is why we all have those two fears.
0: So how does that apply in business? I love the concept. How do we apply that in the business world?
1: Well, what is business? Business is, is business. If you think about it, a business is nothing more than a bunch of individuals coming together for a common goal. That's what business is. And so if this if this belief system sits at the bottom of most of, our, and it, I'm telling you, I've I've worked. All around, I've been to Serbia, I've been to Australia, I've been to Canada, I've been all over the 50 states. I've been like uh, Paris, I've been London, like I've been all, in and, and and I as I'm working with people and I go, okay, what's your problem? My problem is this. And I start to follow it down. It always comes down to that. I'm not good enough. Nobody's going to love me. And when you react out of that, fear breeds more fear. You cannot build on failure. You can only build on success. And so first off, you have to ask yourself, what am I looking to do? What? fears, what fears and beliefs does my customer hold about me, about my product, about themselves, so that when you can meet them where they're at, influence means you and I are on the same resonance. We're vibrating at the same sales Salespeople call it rapport, but it's deeper than that. You ever had those, uh, you ever had those times when you were looking for something? It's like, well, why are you picking this problem? I don't know. It just feels right. It's because you're you're, mat, you're understanding where they're at. So in business, from a marketing perspective, what's well, about understanding what their fears and their beliefs are, beliefs is more than just those two, those two fears, right? But understanding what their beliefs are around your product, around themselves, around the stage of development they're in, around the solution, there's multiple things that you take into consideration. If you're working with a, cl- with a team member, I had a client who, um, he uh, had a receptionist position and the receptionist that he hired was very frustrated and he's like, I don't know what, what's going on here. And I went in and looked. It's like, okay, so tell me about the interview process. This person had set, they'd set, inadvertently set this person up for failure by saying, well, this is an entry level position. You can move up to other positions. Well, they hired this person on. This person was not qualified to go to a VP position, a management position, accounting position, a marketing position. They were really qualified for this. And that was it. And they started getting frustrated because all these other people were getting hired. The company was growing and they were seeing all these people get hired for these other positions. And now all of a sudden they're frustrated, they're angry, They're, fr- they're I'm not getting what I want. And then we, we start to talk about shadow, that part we hide, repress and deny, starts popping up, starts projecting all kinds of beliefs in the company. So understanding you don't love me, I'm not good enough. Understanding that allows the leader, the manager to meet that person where they're at and deal with the real problem not the presenting problem. The presenting problem is, is you're not giving me the job. The deeper thing is I don't feel loved and, and I don't think I'm good enough. And, and so that I'm going to either become over good enough or become over judgmental or become bloated over here. I'm going to become, I'm going to become condensed over here. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Okay. So let me restate. So as a manager, as, as we have team members that work for us, we need to help them feel that they are good enough and we need to help them feel that they are loved and they belong. We need to not use a management style that that makes them feel they're not good enough. So in that example with that lady who, who was in the receptionist role and she wasn't qualified to move up, And and that made her because the expectation was set that she could move up that made her feel like a failure. Instead of that we probably shouldn't have set that expectation going in and when she's in the role, we need to reinforce how she's doing such a great job in the role, how she is good enough in that role and she is successful and we're grateful to have her here in that role
1: exactly so first off it's setting the right expectation look this position here we're looking for somebody that has these qualifications this type of character this type of person Uh, do you have other positions yes we have other positions as well but understand that we're looking for something specific for this role the right person for this gig oh okay then we start to look at because in that specific position he was hiring those young girls that were just coming into their career that were just coming into their adulthood and so those people want to move up, 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 and over. And what he really found he needed was he needed an older uh, uh, on the back half of the relation of of the of the uh, uh, career path who was just looking for something that I, I love connecting with people. I've talked. To, I want to work with the tribe of people, a company that that honors me. And as a manager, then now you're managing two different people. The other thing you mentioned was. Make them feel. You can't make anybody feel anything. You can set the environment up to where that fosters that kind of feeling. But I can't control how you're going to feel, how you're going to. Nothing can separate you from your reality but you. Yeah. And once you understand that, yeah. So the goal of the the manager is is to guide, is to be, is to, again to be the Yoda for these people to support them as they continue to grow as individuals, as team members, and as souls. Really, I, I don't want to get too woo woo on you. But the, the, the more the leader is able to follow, it's like, it's like 70% of sales teams look to their manager to train them to be better, but yet it's like 5%, 10%. I, I don't have that statistic in my head, actually give their managers the tools necessary to sell to hire their sales team. So they hire these people and they expect them to know how to sell and then they put them in a position and then they don't foster growth in those individuals and they can't figure out why their sales are stagnant. Well, they're stagnant because their customer, their their competition is working with me and I'm growing their sales team and they're implementing systems to make sure that those individuals. And the other thing is, is that people don't want to just, they don't want just a job. People want purpose. Part of the identity is understanding the seven basic human needs. One of them is purpose. This is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is how I'm growing one of the seven, one of the seven archetypes is the genius, uncovering my genius. What am I good at? And if a company doesn't provide that, then you get what I call paycheck employees. Paycheck employees are paper thin. They're only there for the paycheck. And as soon as somebody will pay them more money, they will leave you to go do that. You want to have it. I, my son had pyloric stenosis. He had this 53 degree curve around his spine with a twist kind of thing. And the, the Shriners in Chicago, amazing people. And we would go up there and the, 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 um, the janitor, the nurses, the doctors, the CEO, like they walk by, you. how are you today? Like everybody's connecting. And um, I would go there every three months. I would go and put this big cast on my son. It was very, very powerful. Like talk about the hero's journey. That was for me one of the most difficult moments as a, as a parent, but on our last session, I was talking to the nurse who we'd gotten to know quite well, come to find out this nurse was making less money working for the Shriners than she could have made working for a a hospital or someplace else with her qualifications, with her time in. But the reason why she was there was because the meaning, the purpose the management, the way that they fostered the the culture to grow these individuals, to become the best version of themselves. She said, I can't imagine working anywhere else. Made less money.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, as Tony Robbins says, identity is the most powerful force in the human condition. People will do just about anything to stay consistent with the labels they use to define themselves. Number two, stories are one of the most powerful ways to connect with our ideal customers and move them to take action. The hero's journey is one of the most powerful storytelling models. Number three, there are three beliefs a customer must have before they purchase. Those are, I can solve this, this is the right solution for this problem, and now is the time to solve the problem. Number four, we should strive to help our customers have Shazam moments. These are the moments when we evolve into a better version of ourselves. Number five, we should be building an environment that will help our ideal customers and team members counteract their two core fears. Number one, that we aren't good enough and number two, that we won't be loved. To learn more about or connect with Stephen, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or visit his website at masteringchange.com. And there's links to both of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. Do you want to take your digital marketing to the next level? Then you can get a free ebook about passion marketing and learn how to become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me today for this episode. I wish you success as you strive to increase your influence. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.